This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hi everyone, I've got a great show for you today. We'll be talking about why brush piles in your backyard are so important to birds. We'll also be talking about the uh, much maligned blue jay. Why do blue jays get such a bad rap? Blue jays, the birds in blue, will be debunking some long-held myths about the blue jay and learning how beneficial they really are. Then we'll be talking about what to expect when you go to the garden center to buy native plants. Also, dangers at the bird feeder, what to watch out for so you are helping the birds and not hurting them. And then we'll talk about some ideas for early spring planting to benefit bumblebees. So let's talk about brush piles for just a second. I don't know about you, but I did not enjoy that sudden polar vortex that hit New England on May 9th. Did you have any brush piles in your backyard? so the birds could hide out during the cold weather. It's unfortunate that at the same time this polar vortex hit, we were experiencing a migration of millions of neotropical songbirds. Here it is May, and it was snowing and in the low 30s. That's why building a brush pile is such a great idea. You can provide protection for the birds from icy sleet and sub-zero temperatures. The airspace between the branches create nooks where the birds can tough out snowstorms and blizzards, and polar vortexes like the one we just had. Depending on the size of the brush pile, the temperature at the center can sometimes be 10 degrees warmer than the outdoors, which is really great. You know, after that long migration and the birds are exhausted, and then they get hit with temperatures that are just ungodly, a brush pile is just what they need. Not only is a brush pile great for hiding from the cold and warming up a little, it's great protection from predators. So if you haven't built a brush pile yet, think about building several in your backyard. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying build a brush pile and then burn it at the end of the season. If you decide to build these brush piles, you're going to want to keep in mind that you're going to have all manner of wildlife hiding out in these piles. You're going to have a little bunny rabbits, snakes, birds. So it's just not a wise idea to burn it all at the end of the season. So think about keeping permanent brush piles in your yard, and you'll have a lot of happy critters. Okay, now on to the birds in blue. If there could be a species of bird police in the natural world, it would be the blue jay. Birds' lives are so filled with danger. Between the perils of migration, windows, cars, and pesticides, it's a wonder any bird survives unscathed. But then you add in predators like cats, and life can become very dangerous indeed. 
Though each bird species has its own special language of calls designed to allow communication with one another, there is a single sound that qualifies as a universal warning call of danger to all songbirds. That is the cry of the blue jay. The blue jay is regarded as the sentinel of the backyard garden. With guard-like precision, the bird in blue patrols the yard, watching for predators, and is quick to issue its raucous scream to warn other birds of impending danger. Yes, blue jays may be loud and boisterous, but avian scientists estimate their warning calls have saved countless songbirds from predators. In fact, researchers are now claiming that even non-bird species like squirrels and chipmunks listen for the warning call of the blue jay and are quick to take cover when they hear it. Blue jays belong to the corvid family and are extremely intelligent, much like their cousins the crow and the raven. Crows and ravens can talk and use tools, which is pretty scary smart when you think about it. Blue jays also have an extensive vocabulary and can imitate the sound of a cat's meow. Blue jays engage in a practice called anting. They will sit on an anthill until they are entirely covered in the small insects in order to rid themselves of feather mites and fungus. Sort of the corvid version of visiting the car wash. These overwintering birds are also fond of decorating their twig and moss nests with found objects like shiny candy wrappers and pieces of brightly colored cloth. They are excellent parents. Like all corvids, they form complex family relationships and will keep their youngsters by their side until they are nearly the same size as the parents. In addition, the blue jay is an expert at imitating other bird calls and will, on occasion, mimic the call of a hawk to clear a bird feeder of songbirds so they can tuck in and enjoy the choicest seeds and nuts. This naughty type of behavior can really irritate backyard bird enthusiasts, but scientists are now saying the shrill call of the blue jay is what alerts birds to the location of your feeders in the first place. And when you think about it, a few seeds and nuts are a small price to pay for their valuable police duties. The blue jay qualifies as a keystone species, since each bird stores up to 5,000 acorns for later use each year, resulting in plentiful food for other wildlife. Many of these acorns go on to create a ready supply of oak seedlings throughout the bird's home range. The oak tree is the single most beneficial tree for songbirds, since it serves as host to over 500 different species of butterfly and moth larva, the preferred food of songbirds, according to Douglas Tallamy, the renowned entomologist who wrote the book Bringing Nature Home. Avian researchers also say it is a myth that blue jays raid the nests of other birds, carrying off their live young and eating them. We have Audubon himself to thank for that claim. John James Audubon, that endlessly controversial figure of a man, forever tainted the Blue Jays' reputation by referring to the bird as selfish, duplicitous, and filled with malice. Do you think maybe Audubon was having a bad day? Bird experts are now saying Audubon's accounts were greatly exaggerated. What they are also saying is that Blue Jays are omnivores and scavengers and therefore opportunistic meaning they are much more likely to eat an egg lying broken on the ground or make off with a nestling that was already dead. That makes them both police officer and janitor. Actually, a blue jay's preferred food is acorns, seeds, and caterpillars. A backyard gardener who does not incorporate native trees into their landscape in order to provide these foods forces the blue jay to scavenge. In this age of -of out-of-control real estate development and habitat fragmentation, a bird feeder in the yard no longer suffices. 
What birds like the blue jay need now is for the entire yard to function as a bird feeder, and the backyard bird enthusiast accomplishes this goal by planting native. So let's just talk a minute about going to the garden center and buying native plants. And by that, I mean native to your particular area. People, birds are in big trouble right now. Unfortunately, we've reached a tipping point in this country where we have more non-native plants than we do native. And that includes trees as well. According to Douglas Tallamy, the author of the groundbreaking book, Bringing Nature Home, birds cannot or will not eat non-native insects. They only eat native insects. And the only way to have native insects in your yard is to grow native trees, shrubs, and plants. So the equation is this. No insects means no birds. It's a pretty sad state of affairs. But there is a movement afoot to help people find the right native trees and plants to plant in their yard. I'll talk about this fitting analogy to help make the point. Imagine you've worked all day and you're hungry, so you drive to the nearest supermarket to find some food to bring home for dinner. You walk inside the store and you look around and you see all the shelves are empty. So you get in your car and you drive to another supermarket, but you get inside there and that one's empty too. So you become determined and you drive far out of your way to an adjacent town only to find that grocery store is also sold out of food. So increasingly, this is the scenario for wild birds and also pollinators. There's a study just conducted recently by the Smithsonian's Conservation Biology Institute. And what the study is showing is that as more and more native woodlands are bulldozed and replaced with these sprawling urban centers filled with non-native plants and ornamental trees, which is the preferred scape for so many landscaping companies, the more birds and pollinators are starving and unable to successfully rear their young. This new research indicates your typical backyard needs to contain at least 70% native trees and plants in order to help birds survive. Planting natives with their abundant pollen and nectar in turn helps the pollinators. So the pollinators lay their eggs on specific native plants to ensure survival of their young, And these insects in turn help feed the birds. So it's a symbiotic partnership that's worked for thousands upon thousands of years. This study also confirms that birds really need protective cover. So plant placement in your yard is crucial. So you want to think layers, locating bushes and plants close to the trees. So you're creating a safe place where birds can stay hidden from predators. So now when you're adding native trees to your yard, think about creating a canopy by planting several close together. Tree canopy provides birds with protection from the elements, blocking winds from blowing down nests and providing shelter from deep freezes and ice storms. So let's just say for a minute, you're, you're in your car and you're headed to the local garden center. It's really important that you define your terms before you arrive there so you know what you're looking for and also what to expect from the garden center. Some garden centers have varying definitions of what the word native means. So let's talk for a minute about what a true native would be. A true native plant is a plant that has co-evolved and adapted to the local and regional environment in your area. They're the hardiest and most resilient, and they provide the best nutrition for birds and insects, according to scientists. Now, you may walk into the garden center and ask for the native plant section, And the employee will take you down way in the back of the store, around a corner into a small area with a tiny table with six or seven so-called native plants. 
you're going to want to do your research to make sure that those so-called native plants are actually native to your region. And you can do that very easily by getting on Google and looking them up. So let's move on to nativar. What is a nativar? A nativar is not a true native plant. Rather, it is a cultivated variety of a native. Instead of being bred for helping birds and pollinators, it's actually bred for selected traits like petal shape or bloom time. Now, nativars are certainly much hardier and more drought tolerant than non-native cultivars, which we're going to get to in a second. But do nativars benefit birds and pollinators? Perhaps. Some purists would argue that once the structure of a native is altered, birds and insects no longer recognize the plant as useful. And most scientists agree that the nutritional value of nativars is suboptimal. Okay, moving on, let's talk about cultivars. Cultivars are plants you will see labeled with a special name like bearded iris, Beverly Sills. These plants are the result of horticultural professionals who are devoted to creating the perfect version of a particular species of a plant through continued hybridization. This industry relies on the belief that bigger is better and often sacrifices pollen quality and nectar quantity for big show-stopping blooms that birds and insects will be drawn to only to find no sustenance available. Unfortunately, just because the plant ID label says attracts hummingbirds doesn't mean the plant will actually provide any nectar. So it's important to understand that your large garden centers, for the most part, are merely retail outlets. They usually don't grow any of their own plants and are merely the middleman for the growers. If you want to know what I mean, then show up extra early before opening time at a garden center someday and you will see huge 18-wheel trucks pulling in to unload thousands of annuals, often shipped from several states away. So cultivars are often grown in a laboratory using tissue culturing, and many even are patented. Cloning robs a plant of its genetic diversity and makes the plant less adaptable to changing environments. So nativars and cultivars really don't measure up to true natives as far as helping birds and pollinators. But here's the hard truth. The hard truth is that most native plants simply cannot compete with the flashy and showy hybridized cultivars sold at nursery centers by the millions every year. Many mail-order catalogs have conducted extensive marketing campaigns over the last several decades to draw our attention away from beneficial natives in order to appeal to our baser instincts, like planting so-called one-of-a-kind ornamentals from exotic countries that are sure to impress the neighbors. Keeping up with the Joneses has exacted its toll, resulting in a continuing rapid die-off of most of our favorite songbird species. One example is the very popular and flamboyant Japanese Nandina bush. This plant's berries are poisonous and result in the mass poisonings and deaths of many songbirds, especially cedar waxwings, which were one of my favorite birds. And now finally we come to the question of, is the plant organic or is it conventional? Trees, plants, and perennials that have been raised without the use of harmful chemicals like neonicotinoids, which are absolutely deadly to birds and pollinators, are considered organic. They are the safest choice for supporting birds and pollinators, not to mention humans. Raising conventionals, however, can include the use of toxic insecticides and herbicides. So it will be very rare for you to be in a garden center and see a plant ID label that says conventional on it, you really don't want to want to look for organic and or native on your plant labels. You can try talking to employees at the garden center 
But you have to understand, since they don't grow the plants at the site where they're selling them, they often don't know who the distributor is or the grower is. So they really can't give you a guaranteed yes or no on whether a plant has been treated with neonicotinoids. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now for some facts about bees. Did you know female bees also visit plants to collect resins, oils, and other materials for building their nests? For example, the silver-tailed petal cutter bee removes and carries flower petals to line its egg chambers. And mason bees derive their name from their practice of eating and masticating plant parts along with pebbles and mud to create their nests. Also, while many female bees will pass the night underground in their nest, the males tend to live and sleep outside and like to sleep inside cup-shaped blossoms for the night. During a rainstorm, you will see bees hunkering down inside a flower's deep throat, keeping dry until the rain has subsided. Both male and female bees will seek shelter inside cup or trumpet-shaped blooms in wind and rain. Be sure to plant some of these to give your pollinators some extra protection. And now, as you can imagine, we get lots of emails asking questions about birds, trees, plants, and bees. We recently received an email about Pachysandra, which, as you probably already know, is a very popular ground cover in New England. You see it in just about every garden. And this person was asking the tiny white blooms that open up in the late winter, early spring in the Pachysandra, are they beneficial to early emerging bees, say like the queen bumblebee? And sadly, I have to say no, there is no nectar in those plants. It is a non-native plant, unfortunately. There is a native Pachysandra. It's called Pachysandra procumbens, and it's also referred to as Allegheny spurge, which is actually good for pollinators. The bad news is that it thrives only in the southeastern United States. So good news and bad news. But given a choice between lawn and Pachysandra in a New England garden, I would choose Pachysandra hands down because at least birds and pollinators have a place to hide with ground cover. Now, while we're on the subject of bees, especially bumblebees, what do you do if you walk into your garage or your tool shed or your porch and you see a bumblebee in trouble? Somehow they've ended up inside the building and they're very weak. They're either flying and bouncing against the glass of the window and trying to get out, or they're on the floor and they're not able to fly. Well, you can help them just like you help the hummingbirds. Just create nectar the same way you would for hummingbirds by boiling up some uh, granulated sugar and water. And as I said in the first show, the ratio is one to four, one part granulated table sugar to four parts water. So you can make a very small amount for bumblebees. Just take a tablespoon of Domino's white table sugar and four tablespoons of water, boil it up, let it cool off, and then use either the tip of a very small spoon to try to feed the bumblebee. And you'll see them actually open their mouth parts and put their tongue on the spoon and drink the nectar. And then once they're energetic again and they're flying and buzzing, you can take them outside. I usually bring them right out to the sun 
and let them go in the middle of the garden. If you are enjoying this show and love what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Now let's talk a moment about dangers at bird feeders. Keeping bird feeders clean is very important, and here's why. In my job as a wildlife rehabilitator, I see many songbirds come into my center sick with salmonella or conjunctivitis. They pick up both of these diseases from dirty and contaminated feeders. It's especially a problem in the spring as migrating birds arrive in their breeding range and gravitate to already overcrowded bird feeders. Salmonella is contracted when seed drops to the ground and lands in the fecal of other birds, directly below the feeder. The bird ingests the seed with the fecal and becomes very sick. You'll know a bird has salmonella when you see it standing in the grass lethargic and not alerting and flying away when you approach. Salmonella can be fatal if not treated. So you'll want to go to animalhelpnow.org to find a local wildlife rehabilitator to help treat the bird. Now, how do you avoid salmonella? Keep your feeder on a pole and change the feeder's location every few days to avoid the buildup of fecal on the ground. Clean the feeder and refill using a 1 to 10 bleach solution and a scrub brush. Make sure it's completely dry before refilling. Conjunctivitis is highly contagious and also spreads at bird feeders. This mycoplasmal infection affects the eyes and can cause blindness and eventually death. You will sometimes see birds at your feeders with swollen eyes and missing feathers around the eye area. The problem is treatable if caught in time. Call your local wildlife rehabilitator for help. You can go to animalhelpnow.org to find the closest rehabilitator in your area. And again, frequent cleaning of your bird feeder can help stop the spread of the infection. After a thorough cleaning, soak the feeder in one part bleach to 30 parts water for 15 minutes, then allow to completely dry to avoid mold growth. And that's the key. You want the feeder completely dry. You don't want to put seed into a damp bird feeder because that is a breeding ground for mold. And now just a few thoughts on birds and windows. Migration is such a perilous journey for birds. Did you know one billion birds die every year from flying into windows? To me, that is just such an obscene number. And it's really hard to take in. But did you also know there are several things you can do to help the situation? One is an easy one. Just don't wash your windows. In this era of COVID-19, who's going to come over anyway? And even if they do, they're not going to care if your windows are dirty. The other alternative is to use a white marker pen. I just bought one myself on Amazon for $4.70. All you do is take a ruler and draw vertical lines down the window with the white marker pen every one and three quarter inches. The reason for that number is birds can actually turn sideways and fly through two inches of space, believe it or not. The other alternative is to go to the American Bird Conservancy website and check out the Ecopian bird tape and other deterrents that you can buy for your windows. So to continue my personal story from the first episode, I was upset and sad for some time after the death of the swan, but once spring arrived, I had a plan. I approached the man who was a wildlife rehabilitator, the one I had called initially about the swan. I said I wanted to talk to him, and he invited me over. He was a home-based rehabilitator and worked with injured wildlife from his house. I came by, and he showed me around, and I told him I was also hoping to do something similar to what he was doing. At that point, the friendliness ended, and he became very abrupt. I asked if he needed help. I said I was interested in learning how to help injured wildlife. He said, and I quote, Absolutely not. 
Again, I was flabbergasted at his reaction, and I left. It would only be later that I would discover why he was so reluctant to have people helping him. I called several other people running home-based rehabilitation centers, but it was the same response over and over. No, no, and no. I had just about given up when my husband told me we had been invited to visit Key West, Florida by his aunt and uncle. We had never been there, and it sounded interesting, so we agreed to a two-week visit. By then, it was winter again, and we were so grateful to travel to a warmer climate. The Florida Keys seemed like something out of a dream. Crystal clear ocean water, blue sky, sunny, 75 to 80 degrees every day. It was no wonder some people arrived in Key West and never left, as the legend goes. There is so much lore and legend about Key West. If you go to the bars and listen to the locals on Duval Street, you will hear how it's almost a tradition to flee the north, drive a cheap beater car to the top of the Keys, dump the car somewhere in Key Largo, and hitchhike the rest of the way to Key West to start a new life. Key West is a great place to hide. Whether you're dodging the law or alimony or an abusive spouse, it's easy to disappear on the Keys. Well, we weren't even there two days, and I heard about a wonderful place that rescued sea turtles. My husband and I went for a visit, and the director and staff were friendly and approachable. When I asked if they took volunteers, I was delighted to hear someone say yes. It was a shock after hearing all the other rehabilitators say no. The only problem, of course, was we would only be in the area for another 12 days, and then we would be returning to the frozen north of New England for the rest of the winter. Perhaps we'll be invited back for a longer stay next year, my husband said. It was funny he said that, because in my mind, we had already moved to Key West, and I was volunteering full-time at the Turtle Rescue Center. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.